everybody. Scott Burnside back for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the playoff mini hit Monday morning. I always feel like when we come back on Mondays now, uh, there's so much to catch up on that I feel like we have to really rush right into it. There's no easing into a Monday. And uh, I know that one person who has not been easing into anything for The Athletic lately is our man in Boston, Fluto Shinzawa. Fluto, I have this image of you sitting on your porch, maybe smoking a big cigar, maybe having a cup of coffee, and you're looking at social media or you're looking somewhere and you're like, Tuka is going where? Or tell me, just walk us through what's what the the last 48 hours or whatever it's been over the weekend since the news broke that uh, Vezina Trophy finalist Tuka Rask was going to be leaving the Boston Bruins and the bubble and returning home. What to, how did that unfold for you? Uh, not exactly the porch and the cigar story, Scotty. <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> So on Saturday mornings in, in where I live just outside of Boston, we have a farmer's market. Uh, very nice and they, they've it's all changed now obviously but that's that's part of my routine now Saturday morning go down to the farmer's market get some tomatoes whatever and then I come home and I get a text and say assuming you've seen the Tuca news oh, okay <laughs> I wonder what that's about <laughs> so you're running through all kinds of scenarios and then you find out well uh, this is probably uh, by then it was probably an hour and a half before a puck drop for game three and okay he's out well, um, uh, we, we spoke uh, on Zoom with Don Sweeney after that and kind of got a picture of where things were at. And yeah, uh, Tuca said he wanted to be with his family. He is uh, his partner and they have three daughters, including a newborn that was born during the shutdown. So that, that couldn't have been easy. Um, and he just felt that just with, with everything there, I'm sure the strain of being in the bubble was getting to him just because two, two days earlier he had made comments about not stressing about his results, which which really set off all the, the red lights for me and I'm sure for management too. So you put all, everything together and that was the best decision, obviously, for Tuca and his family. And that was the decision that was optimal for the Bruins. Um, and away with it they went. Um, Bruce Cassidy found out on the way to the rink. And so he goes, he gets on the bus and tells Yaro Halak, okay, you're starting. And this is this is your net because we got options uh, B and C after you. They've never played in the NHL playoffs. And one of them has never played in an NHL game. So, and then they go out and win. And Yaro was, was good other than one brain fart. So, yeah, it's been, it's been... Um, Interesting times um, for Tuca and the Bruins. Yeah, you know what? There's so much to unpack with it too. And I, uh, you know, I, I just thought, and I'm curious to see what your reaction is because you, you're around the team all, all the time, and you know the, the personalities involved, and you know, you, you just know what this team is about. They're and trying to uh, come back after losing in Game Seven in the final last year at home to St. Louis, and all the things that go into it. And Tuca is such a huge part of that. But I did think that, I thought the Bruins handled it. Absolutely. Uh, to me, it was just pitch perfect. You know, Don Sweeney, it's, you know, certainly sounds, everything sounded like, listen, we respect Tuka Rask. He's important. Whatever is best for him is best for us. And and I wonder, 
whether any of how it unfolded has surprised you. I mean, obviously the timing wasn't wasn't great for the team, but I wonder if, if, if you've been surprised by maybe the tone and the tenor and maybe just how the team has responded to, you know, which is, you know, obviously uh, a bombshell at a critical time in their series against uh, Carolina. That's right. I, I think the, the only discordant thing about it was the timing of of this being Saturday morning of, of a noon game. And then uh, the GM and the president find out about it directly from Tuca. Um, and then the team, the coach and the teammates find out on the bus. So obviously not optimal, but it, it had just bubbled to that point where there was no other alternative. Um, so that, yes, that that was, and, and Bruce Cassidy said, a bit of a shocker, as, as you might imagine. Um, other than that, no, I... I, I uh, you you watch the game and it's not surprising at all first that Yara was able to come in and play he's he's very good goalie uh per- perfect partner for Tuca it's been a it's been a, a absolutely uh optimal setup for him in Boston and that's going to be extent that was extended actually during the shutdown where he signed his extension for one more year so this will be going on next year too so no surprise that he played the way he did and the room is I'm sure there were some players that are going around what is going on but you know that Zdeno and Patrice are going to set the tone and say hey this is this is who we got we have absolute faith in Yarrow this is how we're going to play in front of him and I thought game three was their most complete effort um, of the series so far and yeah 3-1 game uh, that wasn't a 3-1 game full command even before uh, two to one that wasn't a one goal game before the empty netter so um, and yeah, credit to to Don for explaining the situation. Yes, he said that it was not something that caught them completely off guard. That he had an idea that there was there was some struggle there on Tuca's part, and he said he, he credited Tuca for trying to persevere and fight through it to the point where he even uh, where uh, maybe this was something that he was thinking about not not going to Toronto in the first place. But until you live that. You just don't know, right? Of three, almost three weeks of being in the bubble and what that's like in terms of, you can't can't go for a cup of coffee, you can't drive your car, you can't do anything. That's just and, and Tuca had actually spent two days in, in uh, quarantine there because he had self-reported a cough um, before the, the the round robin. So that that said, you had to be in your hotel room. You got to return two negative tests. So you can't even go outside of your room. So that must have really, really been tough uh, for him. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, good, good reaction to a, a bad situation. Well, and I, I it, maybe it's way too early to be looking down the road and say, okay, well, what are the, what are the ramifications for this? Because this is a Bruins team, you know, sort of uh, meandered through the round robin. That might even be charitable to say they meandered through the round robin, but they have really, like, to me, that I, I just I've loved that series because, you know, a lot of people love Carolina and of course the history going back to the Eastern Conference Final last year, and the Bruins have been the better team. There's no question, in, in frankly, in, in my mind, in all three games. Um, and so maybe, you know, if the Bruins go to a conference final or a Stanley Cup final, of course, if they win a Stanley Cup, maybe the whole Tuka Rask thing t- takes on a different tenor or, or is shot through a different prism. But let's say that they don't have success, whether they beat the Canes and then lose in the next round. Uh, is, is it too early to have a sense of what it will be like for Tuka Rask to come back into that locker room in late 
November, whenever training camp starts up again. He's got one more year left on his deal at $7 million. Um, you know, Vezina Trophy finalist. He's he's an elite goaltender. He's, he's a big part of the fabric of that team, at least my sense is. Too early to tell it, what kind of, you know, ramifications are for this. Or maybe there won't be any. Maybe this team is just so mature they're like, hey, we, oh, that happened. Now let's move on to the next challenge. Yeah, I, I had asked around about that uh, yesterday with, with some people. I think the room will be fine. Let, let's just say uh, everything starts 2020, 2021 on time, December, whatever. Uh, he comes back and they're good to go. I, I think the players would be okay um, just because of what he's done and he's a good teammate. Everybody likes him. But if your management, he, he took a leave of absence in November of 2018. Um, right. Kind of a sim. I, I, well, I don't know if it's a similar situation, but he said afterward he had to be with his family, um, and so of course different circumstances. But that was kind of sudden too, and Yarrow had to play a back-to-back in one of those two games. It, it kind of left them holding the bag. So of course you respect him as as a person, but he's also an employee. So this is two times now, and the second time being at a critical time of you're not able to depend <clears throat> on a critical employee being there and, and performing. So what does that do for a team? And and let's just look at it from Tuca's perspective. Yeah, he has one more year, but the, the, the chatter about that was that after that, even though he's playing well and he's he's been fit and, and injury-free, that he might just say goodbye and retire after the next year so maybe that advances a year maybe he's just like forget it i don't want to or if you're the bruins and you're saying do we want to risk this happening again who knows so you wouldn't i don't think anybody would want to take that on in terms of a player or or a team trading for him just because they might be in a similar situation too because he i think he likes living in boston uh there's that's that's just fine um so would he want to go to another team and, and have that crop up again? Who knows? Um, could you see a situation where he just says, uh, it's, it's, I, I want to be at home um, and not fulfill that final year of his deal? Maybe. Who knows? And then they'd have to suspend him and, for not reporting, and, and who knows? Move, maybe they move on. So at this point, it's so early in the process, Scott, that you don't know. But, yeah, people are wondering. Just some agents were saying, well, because I asked, what, is this, what do you think this means for Tuca and the team next year? And they said, well, maybe there's more to the whole story, and then, um, then there might be some, some issues there. But if this is, this is how it is, and he gets it sorts out, get it, gets it, you know, the, the family side ironed out, then he'll come back and uh, life will go on. It's not the first time the Bruins have had a goaltender with a very strong mind no. and different uh, views on on how how life and career should unfold. So maybe there is some you know some benefit to having been through it. It uh, it's just so fascinating, and it, it's going to be fascinating to see you know just how the Eastern Conference sort of moves forward. We watch the Flyers squeak out a, a victory over Montreal, so they take a two one lead in that series. Uh, we've seen Tampa similarly you know nudge themselves ahead of. Uh, Columbus, but the team that is not uh, nudging or creeping along is the New York Islanders, and um, and I, I wonder if I it, it, Islanders fans think that I have it in for that team, which is not 
that's not true, not true at all. But um, I really have come around to this notion that maybe the narrative isn't, you know, it, you know, the Capitals, they have no Nicholas Backstrom, and is this the end for Braden Holpe? And, you know, all the, the narrative is really focused on, you know, a team that won the Stanley Cup two years ago in, in 18. Maybe the story is this Islander team might be way, way better than anyone imagined. And when I say anyone, I guess I get, I mean me, but I wonder if, if there's a level of surprise for you to see that the Islanders, by virtue of their overtime win in game three, now up three nothing on a caps team that really hasn't been close in the, the scores have been close it's not a close series obviously yeah uh, completely surprising that washington washington more so than the islanders just because you look at the roster what they've done how they play and you've, you just figured that that would be a handful for anybody but then from from the other perspective it's such a well-coached team islanders and, and they've been through it in terms of of having the coach there and, and, and optimizing that kind of structure and, and strategy. Um, and that's a hard team to play just because of, of the defense. There's some big guys back there, and you don't want to be going up against a lot of those those defensemen in particular and trying to get inside on them. And that must be just be frustrating for a team like Washington where you're just – Maybe I, I haven't really paid that close attention to it, but maybe they're being stubborn. Maybe they're trying to force plays that just the Islanders aren't letting them them uh, them play. So yeah, good for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I uh, very surprised. I thought Washington would um, would uh, give them a, a much better series than they have. I should. I, I'm going to circle back. I should have asked you this already, Fluto. But uh, the one thing that you know sort of gets lost in the Tuka Rask departure and of course Yaroslav Halak coming on and playing as as well as he did in, in game three. No David Pasternak again, although I see him about every 10 minutes now on the Duncan commercial. So I got to <laughs> tell you, I'm like a lot of people. It's a lot of, there's a lot of muting that's going on in the house now with the commercials that uh, I'm like, okay, I'm down on Subway. Sorry, down on, and even though I like those pasta Duncan commercials, man, that's a bit repetitive. But that's, uh, you know, we see him sitting up in the stands in Toronto, and I wonder, again, if if this is just the nature of that Boston team that you take out, uh, you know, arguably, certainly one of the, the, the top offensive players in the game, and you take him out of the lineup, and the Bruins seem not to have truly missed a beat on that front. Uh, surprised by that, and maybe... It sounds like it's not a particularly serious thing, but the information is so stunted coming out of the bubbles that it's really hard to get a handle on. Yeah, I, I would I would say I, I would doubt that he'd be in for game four. Um, but yeah, it's been they it's it's hard to believe, but they haven't missed 48 goals just because <laughs> they have the, they have the depth um, five on five. It hasn't been great. Um, Anders Bjork was up there. And he got benched in the third. He took three minor penalties, all stick penalties, and then Bruce Cassidy just said, "All right, that's you're done." So <laughs> maybe we'll. I'm sure Anders will come back and, and play more responsibly. But they have options. And one of the, and you got to credit the coach that he can identify and say, "Okay, a 21 year old rookie, Jack Stanika, never he played one round robin game, but he's played two NHL regular season games, first year pro." 
okay, we're going to go with him as your third-line right wing. And he gets uh, eight attempts, most of any player. And and maybe he's a guy that if uh, if Bjork doesn't work out, maybe he goes up in Pasternak's spot with, with Brad and Patrice. And then you have to credit David Krejci, too, because he steps right into David's play, David Pasternak's place on the power play. Different look, obviously. He's not going to bring that one-timer, but... He scores a power play goal just because he's a, such a smart player and he's you have to respect the pass, but then he's he's eager to shoot at times too. And this is something that Bruce Cassidy has talked about of, of thinking about next year if Tory Krug walks, which I would suspect he would do. He's, he's, in my mind, the best power play quarterback in the league, but Bruce has thought about going with five forwards next year um, if, if Tory walks. So these are the things that I think... Um, the Bruins people who follow the Bruins, I think, are are kind of in tune to the fact that Bruce is a very cerebral coach. He's thinking ten moves down the line, but a lot of these things, he, he they really worked in Game Three. He made three lineup changes: Connor Clifton, uh, Stadnika, uh, and uh, I'm forgetting the third one. But um, oh, Parlin Home comes in for the fourth right. line. So all these moves worked. So uh, I think in terms of coaching in this series, hey, I'm, I know that the players love playing for, for Rod, and he's one of those guys that you, you go through a wall for that guy. But I think in terms of tactics and, and strategy and thinking and game planning, and Bruce has had the upper hand for, for two years now. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, Pluto, thank you so much for hanging out. And you should always read Pluto's coverage for us at The Athletic Boston and follow him at Pluto Shinzawa. All right, Pluto, you're on your way. Go and smoke that cigar. Have a cup of coffee. I'm sure nothing else will happen to today for the Bruins. But uh, And uh, we're going to come back with our man in Edmonton, Thomas Trance. I expect he's probably had about 15 minutes of sleep given uh, things that transpired in the Edmonton bubble yesterday. Uh, but don't go away. We will be right back with Thomas Trance. I love my high student loan payment, said no one ever. So you should check to see if refinancing with Ernest could help you lower your monthly payments. Checking takes just two minutes. If you've been making the same monthly payment on your student loans for the last couple of years, odds are you could reduce your payment and save by refinancing with Ernest. If you've refinanced before, with today's low rate environment, most people could save by refinancing again. Plus, there's no origination fee or any other fees. Plus, the internet loves Ernest's customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot. And now, you can get $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan with Ernest.com slash two men. Once again, you get $100 cash bonus when you refi your student loan at Ernest.com slash two men. Not available in all states, so visit Ernest.com slash two men. For more details, terms and AMP conditions apply. Ernest student loan refinance loans are made by Ernest Operations LLC NMLS number 1204917, California Financing Law License number 6054788, 303 2nd Street, Suite 401- N, San Francisco, California, 94107. Visit earnest.com slash licenses 
for a full list of licensed states. All right. As promised, Thomas Jantz joining us again from Edmonton. Thomas, I, there's so much so much activity and action in the West, and I, I feel sort of bad because I think sometimes, not to become, you know, Eastern-centric, uh, but you know, sometimes the best... I just feel that sometimes people may be missing out on like high drama in Edmonton. And there were, I thought all three games in Edmonton yesterday were were chock full of drama. I mean, you had Vegas uh, in a position to, to close out Chicago and the Blackhawks come back and, and, and gut out a win. So they stay alive. But to me, the two other games, like, the, and maybe people are, they're a little bit under the radar, but the, Dallas coming back late to tie and then winning in overtime to even that series against Calgary. That is an epic battle going on there. And then the team that you cover, the Vancouver Canucks and the defending Stanley Cup champions. And I, 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 I'm so mad at the schedule and I look because they're going to, they played late on Sunday. <laughs> they're going to play late again today, right? I mean, they get the third or the, the late game today. Um, that series I, I I think we're seeing something pretty special from that Vancouver team, but a huge win by the defending champs in overtime. Braden Shen on a breakaway seemed to catch everyone a little bit by surprise on the Canucks end, and the Blues win their first game of the series and their first game of the of the playoffs. So I, I'm wondering, there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to before we're done, I'll we'll circle back to Calgary, Dallas, but I I wonder what you have seen in that Vancouver St. Louis series because it's it, people may not be aware but I think that Vancouver team has made quite a statement thus far. Uh, there's no question about that. They've played really well. They were a shot away in overtime from taking a 3 nothing series stranglehold over the defending Stanley Cup champions, like the team that was first in the West at the pause in the St. Louis Blues. Now, the Blues were able to push back and get their win and they were better than a you know four three scoreline or an overtime victory would imply. Like they were really good last night. The Blues took over that game, especially late. There were long stretches where they imposed the sort of slower pace that they want. They were more disciplined than they were in games one and two, and you know in the third period especially, it began to feel like the Canucks were holding on for dear life as opposed to taking the initiative and being more assertive. And, and there's a couple major reasons for that, but the first reason, reason number one, a, a big reason to stay up if you're a hockey fan and watch some of this series tonight is that Ryan O'Reilly is at the absolute peak of his powers. Like, he is just demolishing everybody in this series. There isn't a puck battle that he doesn't win there isn't a shift that he doesn't spend glued to the Vancouver end of the ice. It is a remarkable performance that he is putting in right now uh, and, and well worth tuning into. This is as good as you'll see anyone play in terms of two-way hockey. What Ryan O'Reilly's done in this series is nothing short of magnificent. <laughs> he makes a great play on another uh, David Perron. Every time he gets a puck, he scores. Right? Like it's just yeah. I, I was I love you know what I love about that game is that the goals were. I mean, they were high-end goals. All the, all the, Every one of the goals. I mean, JT Miller, uh, you know, he roofs one. David Perron roofs one from a really improbable angle, but still a great shot. Uh, it's uh, it, it has been a high-end series. And I'm curious whether you think, so this is sort of the first, I don't even count really the first 
play-in game against Minnesota. Yeah, the Canucks were, looked a bit out of sync, but they win three in a row there. Then they win the first two games of this series against, as you point out, one of the most complete teams in the NHL. Are you, if you're a Canucks fan, are you like, uh oh, is this like, is this the, is this the Blues? doing Blues things, and we saw them in the playoffs do it against Winnipeg. We saw them do it uh, against San Jose in uh, the Western Conference Final and ultimately against the Bruins. Or, or is this a real test now for Vancouver about, okay, this you know you don't get to, you don't get to sweep the defending champs. And so if you want to go on and play in the next round, you're going you're gonna to have to get your nose in it. I wonder how you think or if you think that overtime loss changes maybe that dynamic in that Canucks room. Yeah, I think there's an extent to which this team's playing with house money anyway. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to be too upset about it today. Like, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. I don't think this is one of those games, one of those wins for St. Louis where, you know, it, it bleeds into today's game. Like, I really don't think that's the case. I think the Blues are going to have to win again. And I don't think the Canucks are going to give them anything. I still think there's a ton of things that are in Vancouver's favor in this series, in particular the goaltending matchup, uh, although Jake Allen stabilized things for the Blues as they turned to him in Game 3, and special teams, right? If, if more of this series or more of these games are played <laughs> at 5-on-4, that's a huge edge for Vancouver. We only saw four total penalties in Game 3. In the two prior games, we saw you know, nine and five, uh, you know, that I think that suits the Canucks a little bit better. That's like a slight edge for them, but there's enough for them to sort of hang on to. And then additionally, you know, until last night, every line that the Vancouver Canucks were using played really well five on five with the exception of the Pedersen line who, you know, Ryan O'Reilly was hard matched against and he was coming out well ahead in that matchup. Very seriously, the Canucks just have a Ryan O'Reilly problem. So, <laughs> The series shifts in Game 3 to Vancouver having last change. And all of a sudden, Travis Green's able to carve out, you know, 50% of Elias Pettersson's ice time is against people who aren't Ryan O'Reilly. And in that 10 minutes, the Canucks outshoot the Blues 13-2 at 5-on-5, five five, right? Pettersson line just takes it to the Blues' depth. The problem with that, right is that that also means that 50% of O'Reilly's ice time is spent against people who aren't Elias Pettersson. And in those 11 minutes, the Blues outshoot the Canucks 16-4. to So you've got this sort of weird issue where it's like the, the options that Green's sort of looking at is Travis Green, the Canucks head coach, as he looks at his whiteboard is, you know, I'm not going to get much if I throw Elias Pettersson out against Ryan O'Reilly, but do, do the Blues get less <laughs> in those minutes? Like, that's just such a fascinating matchup now. We've got two really high-end two-way centermen, um, you know, peak of their powers. The Blues have loaded up that line with Jaden Schwartz on it. And then, you know, they introduced some depth pieces with a little bit more speed. Yesterday, too, Jordan Cairo had a really big impact. I thought Mackenzie McEachern, too, sort of changed that series. So Steen and, a, and an injured or clearly ailing, not 100%, Vladimir Tarasenko come out of the lineup. You've got some young, speedy guys in. I think that changed the dynamic, too. There, there's a lot that the Canucks are going to have to contend with. They're going to have to be better than they were 5-on-5, five five, and, and they're going to have to make Jake Allen a little bit less comfortable 
than they did last night if they're going to get, you know, a third and a fourth win in this series. And then on the Blues end, they really just need to play the focused game that they played yesterday as opposed to the raw nerve anger game that they kind of brought where they were really trying to emphasize pushing the Canucks around in games one and two. I think that really played in to the way that this Canucks team can punish you for mistakes. Uh, Blues were a lot more disciplined last night, and that was a big factor in them, you know, finally getting off the schneid and on the board in the Western bubble. I I just, I I love Craig Berube because he's so... You know, there's not a there's not a lot of flowery stuff, right? It's all pretty A to B kind of stuff, and it's it's a pretty direct manner of coaching and and mm-hmm. dealing with certainly with the media and I assume with the players as well. So to go to Jake Allen after Jordan Binnington, you know, last year's playoff darling, and a guy who I I you know had a pretty good um, first. NHL season as a starter for the Blues, right? As you mentioned, they were the you know top team in the Western Conference at the pause. Um, but to go to Jake Allen, I, I don't know whether that's a you know an indictment necessarily of Jordan Bennington, who wasn't you know he was on, he was only okay, <laughs> right in the first two games. Um, but really, Jake Allen, I thought reestablished himself this season as a viable NHL goaltender, and uh, I'll be uh, curious to see. And I wonder what you think of a the just the that decision and going back to back. Um, listen, Jake Allen said lots of time to rest. I, I, well, I can't imagine you wouldn't go back to him, but I, you know, back-to-backs are funny things for goaltenders. I wonder what you made of the whole goaltending thing for the Blues. Yeah, I don't think it was just a back-to-back thing. I don't think that was the consideration here. I think, honestly, the answer that says it all was post-game after game two, you know, very simply, I, I asked Bo Horvat and Quinn Hughes, you know, I tried to cheat on the NHL Zoom rules and ask a question of two players at the same time. And, you know, I just asked them to walk us through the overtime goal. And Bo Horvat explained, and, and this, you know, was said w- with no hint of arrogance, but nonetheless, I think, spoke volumes. You know, Bo Horvat simply said that he'd gone five hole on the overtime winner because he assumed that Bennington was expecting him to go low blocker side, which is where the Canucks had been shooting all night, right? I do think that the Canucks have some really high-end finishers. Uh, that power play especially is, is dangerous. We saw it, we saw that last night too. There was a hilarious sequence where, you're right, Perron makes that shot. And I tweeted out, you're not going to see a better shot in this playoffs than the one Perron just makes. And then, you know, of course, I tweeted that out waiting for the TV feed to catch up because in this tape-delayed world, I'm like 45 seconds on the game clock ahead of the audience, and I don't want to be a spoiler. So I waited to tweet that one out. 37 seconds later on the game clock, which was actually five seconds after I tweeted that thing about Perron, finally hit send. Elias Pettersson makes just a ridiculous, like, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker going down the, (laughs) the trench of the Death Star shot just absolutely picks a corner on Jake Allen. And, you know, I just tweeted or replied at that tweet and just said, actually, wait, right? <laughs> and waited for the audience to catch up. But the, you know, the overall high-end nature of this Canucks offense and their shooters, I do think made life difficult for Bennington. I think they really exposed that high blocker side. It's an area he struggled with all season. Uh, and the Canucks just have the shooters to really punish that. That, that flaw was a, a problem for Bennington and for the Blues in this series. And, and I do think that Horvat answer, that, you know, 
I, I was able to find space because I thought he, you know, we, we're in his head. We He thought we were going to shoot in this one area. I, I think that was, you know, I think that resonated loud and clear. I think it said a lot about how this series has unfolded to this point. And I thought it was telling, too, that Craig Berube essentially telegraphed that he was going to go to Jake Allen right after Game 3 ended. Their goaltending hadn't been good enough. They needed a boost. Allen's given it to them. I would expect him to start again in the second leg of back-to-backs on Monday night. Yeah. All right, before we let you go, I want to circle back to that Dallas-Calgary game. Yeah. Talk about drama. I mean, that whole series has been kind of wacky, and both teams with a lot to prove, right? I mean, a lot of, you know, there's a lot, there were a lot of questions, frankly, about both Calgary and Dallas going into this series. I'm not sure we've answered any or many of them. We certainly have answered one question, though, after game four, and that is Joe Pavelski has still got it. Guy scores three (laughs) times, in fact, ties it with 12.9 seconds left in regulation. This is after the Stars looked like they tied it, have the goal overturned by Corey Perry, or on a Corey Perry goaltender interference call, which was the right call. Um, But just uh, just a ton of, of drama and even though you know that game is a 5-4 game Cam Talbot was under siege right faced mm-hmm. a ton of pucks I was looking here I think it's over 50 shots um how do you, what do you how do you unpack a series now um you, you know that teeters on the balance between you know Calgary taking a 3-1 lead and looking like they're ready to move on and the Stars you know getting up off the mat and and absolutely uh, you know, winning a game they have to win, and now best of three. Yeah, I think that this Dallas Stars team should win this series for a variety of reasons. I, I really love their blue line. Like their blue line's played incredible, uh, and has and has been really good. You know, I think Denis Gurionov's uh, future star and some of their old heads. You know, these these are guys who just know how to win, and they play this sort of cynical. Uh, rough them up in a back alley style. Uh, it might not be a ton of fun to watch, but it's extremely effective, and, and they're a tough customer of a hockey team. But, you know, I do like this energy from this Calgary team, and, and it's such a weird dynamic in Calgary because, you know, locally anyway, I, I, I think there's a lot of skepticism about what this core group, right? And I'm talking your Gaudreau's and your Monahans, especially. I don't yep. think Kachuk, I don't think this applies to Kachuk. But I think there's a lot of skepticism about what the Flames' top line can do in terms of winning in the playoffs in, in Calgary. I think there's a lot of impatience. And and that's not something you often see. Like, you might see the media carve top players after a playoff loss. But typically speaking, I feel like fan bases blame their depth as opposed to the Dreisaitl's, the McDavid's, the Austin Matthews, the Elias Pettersons of the world. But that's kind of what you have in Calgary. And for all of that... I think this Flames team has a ton of character, and I, I don't just mean that in terms of the old hockey, like they have it's a character win by a character team. I mean they just have characters, and they they have a lot of loud sort of players. Uh, you know, you think about Milan Lucic, you think about Sam Bennett, you think about even guys like Andrew Mangiapane, and you know, Dylan Dubé for me has been one of the breakout stars of this tournament. Like, Dylan Dubé looks to me like the NHL's next great super pest. He's annoyed the absolute living hell out of Dallas, and he's punished them <laughs> repeatedly with his speed. That third line with Bennett and Lucic, that's been a real problem for Dallas. They they almost won, you know, game four for the Flames. And, you know, I, I do think that that's 
an especially large advantage in this environment, in this antiseptic, you know, empty ranks, have to generate your own energy as a team. Like, I think the Flames still do that better than just about anyone else. They obviously got throttled holding a lead in Game 4. Uh, I think Dallas has been the better team in this series. I think Dallas is the better team. But there's something about this Cal- this Calgary energy that I think, you know, is going to make them a really tough out for Dallas, even over, you know, the course of the next three games in this series. I, I think it goes seven. I think it's really tight. And-, and I still just look at it and think that Calgary has just enough, just enough that they need. Uh, to score the upset here, uh, especially because I just think they have that emotional edge. And, and it's not just an emotional edge that they have over Dallas. I, I've been really struck by, you know, that that consistent level of energy that the Flames seem to be able to create in this environment versus every other team in the tournament. I just think they're better at it. I think that matters. And it's something to watch for. Yeah. I know that we have a huge emotional advantage having you in Edmonton, and I know you are there every minute of every day. And <laughs> you should never veer away from reading Thomas's uh, coverage for the Athletic NHL, and you should follow Thomas at Thomas Trance. And you should also check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Two Man Advantage on Apple. And you've got some time on your hands waiting for the next game to roll around. You should listen to Craig Custance, who has my old pal Dan Hamwis, uh, just such a great, classy guy. Uh, announced his retirement. He'll be on the full 60 with Craig Custance this week. And Kenny Albert from NBC Sports joins Mike Russo this week on Straight from the Source at The Athletic. And Jonas Siegel and James Myrtle recap another disappointing end to the Leaf season on the Leaf Report on The Athletic. You won't <laughs> want to miss that. Uh, Thomas, thanks for hanging out. And we'll be back tomorrow morning because I can guarantee, if I don't know anything that's going on in these playoffs, and I, I've had it's been hard to get your hands around sometimes, I do know that there will be more drama between now and then. So come back and join us tomorrow morning, and we'll do it all over again.